This is episode 231 of That Shakespeare Life. That Shakespeare Life is supported by listeners just like you who sign up to be our patrons. You can join our listener community on Patreon right now at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare Life and stay tuned after the episode for even more details. So first of all, what you need to do is soak in some salty water and that just extracts any blood that's hanging around in there. It sounds gory, but it's not. You don't really see it. The, the water just goes a little bit cloudy. Uh, so that's step one. And then you poach them in a court bouillon, it's called. It could be just as simple as something like salty water, but you can add onions and leeks, lemon juice, parsley stalks, a bit of white wine. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. In researching history for the podcast, I was going through Hugh Platt's Good Housewives Jewel, a cookbook that was written in 1596 to 1597. One recipe that caught my eye called for sweetbread. Ambitiously, I decided to try and make this recipe, thinking I would be diving into a cake or perhaps some version of loaf bread. However, as I started to research the various ingredients, I was surprised to discover that this sweet bread wasn't bread at all. But instead, sweet bread was actually the 16th century phrase for the pancreas of a cow. Discovering the sweet bread was not at all a bread, but instead an organ meat was the moment I decided we definitely needed to know more about the surprising food. And to do that, we needed to bring in an expert, which is why I reached out to our friend and returning guest to that Shakespeare life, expert food historian, Neil Buttery. Neil joins us today to share the history and a few recipes for how to cook 16th century sweet bread. Neil Buttery is a food historian, chef, author, blogger, podcaster, and scientist who has been obsessed with historical and traditional British food since he began writing his food blogs in 2007 in an effort to improve his writing for his PhD in ecology and evolutionary biology. Ecology lost out in the end, eventually leaving science to pursue a career in food, first holding regular pop-up restaurant events, then a real restaurant. These days, however, he's kept busy writing about and studying, and of course, eating, food history for his books and popular blogs and podcasts. He has a particular love of offal and puddings. Neil's latest book, A Dark History of Sugar, is out now and available wherever books are sold. We'll include direct links to Neil's work and his latest book in the show notes for today's episode. Hello, Neil. Welcome back to the show. So nice to see you again. It's very good to be back. Thanks for asking me to come on again. Why is sweet bread called sweet bread? Well, it's usually um, plural, sweet breads, all one word. Well, it, there's a lot. It's a bit of a murky world, the world of the sweet bread. It's kind of hard to work these things out. <laughs> it sounds like a simple question. So, there's various answers to that, but I'm going to tell you the one that I go with. Okay. <laughs> that'll, that'll work. I like that. So sweetbread is, is a compound word made of two of the words, sweet and bread. They're both Old English, they're very old words. Sweet, because they taste sweet, slightly. Some people say, a bit like a scallop, 
I mean, we'll talk about what sweet breads are, but they're basically a gland. <laughs> There's various glands that you that can eat. That doesn't sound appetizing. It doesn't sound. Sweet bread sounds much nicer. Yeah. So sweet because apparently it tastes sweet. And bread, well, that's because if you go right back to Old English, the word bread meant meat. There you go. That, which sounds odd, but when you think about it, you know, going to church, going to uh, mass and Holy Communion, or if you go to a meal, bread and Christ's flesh, well, they're the same thing. So Christians believe, you know, at particular times uh, uh, when you eat bread. So at some point, the word bread, meaning meat, changed its meaning and it became to be known as bread. <laughs> So you mentioned earlier that it was similar to a scallop, but what does eating sweetbreads, and I will pronounce this correctly now that I know, what what does <laughs> eating sweetbreads taste like? Well, I really like them. I'm a big fan. They're a gland. They're either the thymus gland, which is just sat around the heart, just above the heart. So that's often called a heart sweetbread or a throat sweetbread. Or it's the pancreas, and that's usually called the stomach sweet bread they're kind of white and they're squashy <laughs> uh, and they look really odd because we don't really eat them anymore but actually when you taste them they're pretty inoffensive they've got a very mild slightly sweet some people like a scallop so slightly of the sea maybe a little bit sweet a very slight metallic taste that you get with with offal you know um, various organs edible organs of an animal. Yeah, there seems to be a slight metallic flavour, but pretty inoffensive, much nicer and much more approachable once you get your mind over the fact you're eating a, a gland. <laughs> so if you, if you can get past the, the oddity of it, it sounds like yeah. it, it works pretty well in a, in a lot of different ways. Much less um, strong taste than, say, something like kidney or liver, which can be a bit off-putting and powerful for some. So were sweetbreads associated with a specific class or maybe even a specific holiday in the 16th century? I think of how here in the U.S. we associate turkey with Thanksgiving, for example. Was Were sweetbreads an everyday kind of food or were they used for particular celebrations? Well, they weren't an everyday food because, well, they were associated really with late spring, early summer, because that's the time of the year where lots of male lambs or male calves are slaughtered. You never ate your females because they're going to give you milk and cheese and things like that. So people tended to eat males and you would only need to keep a few males behind to breed with the females. So what you had really was too many males running around. So they'd be cold late spring, early summer, and there'd be sweetbreads everywhere. I mean, they're, they're, they're slaughtered all the way through the year, of course, but that was a, a big, uh, like a peak time. And they would trickle in. So during peak times, everybody was eating them, very much associated with uh, sheep or cattle farmers. And then when it was just trickling in the rest of the year, well, they were slightly more difficult to get. And suddenly they became, you know, a little bit more associated with upper middle classes and the upper classes, I suppose. So if you're eating it out of season, you're you're obviously going to great lengths to get that. So out of season eating mm. of sweetbreads was more upper class, but during the season when there's a lot of them, it was a generally just a, a widespreadly available food. Yeah. 
So uh, unlike steak or roast meat, where there might be 20 or more portions of the meat on one cow, mm. sweetbreads of an animal are are limited, as you mentioned, because there's only one heart per cow. Or so I, I assume there's only one thymus. But how would you go about getting a hold of it out of out of season if you were in the 16th century? What was that just these occasional male lambs or cows that got slaughtered or were, was there an import of them from somewhere? Yeah, I mean, people bought um, whole carcasses or whole animals, sorry. So, you know, they'd have to slaughter the animal themselves. So sometimes they would just be there. But you might go down to the shambles, which is the old name for the kind of the butcher's quarter of a town. And there might be a, a tray of sweetbreads for you just to take a few of. Uh, like I said, depending on the time of year, you know, they were a very great deal in price. It'd be much easier to find them in the 16th century as it is today. Because people kind of turn their noses up at these things. <laughs> we we dismissed that. Now, were was it always just sheep and cows, or were there other animals that had a thymus and a pancreas that you that you would eat, or was it was it only those two? It seems like it's just those two, and I don't really know why that would be. Uh, because deer have them, you know. So, and venison was eaten quite a lot. I do know that the, the thymus gland once an animal gets kind of beyond. It's adolescence, if you like. It tends to toughen up and not be so delicious. So they tend to be always associated with young animals. Yeah, and just those two. Yeah, do you know what? I've never thought about it until you just asked. <laughs> That's why I like getting asked questions because yeah, well, we try. We, we try to we try to bring the interesting questions <laughs> on his website, British Food History. Neil actually tried out cooking a recipe for sweetbreads, and there's a picture of them on his table before he starts to cook them. It's very interesting, so I will link to this post in the show notes so you can see the the process there and how it kind of turned out. But Neil, tell us about this experience. What are these specifically that that you cooked here? So they're lamb sweetbreads, and they are heart sweetbreads. And I can, you can tell that they're heart ones because they're quite plump. The thymus sort of sits around the top of the heart, going around the major um, blood vessels. Yeah, it's like two lobes, they're kind of round. Some people think they're called sweetbreads because they look like a nice little round bun, bread bun or something like that. I don't think that one's true. I prefer the other one. I mean, we... You're clutching at straws. I just go with the explanation that's most interesting. <laughs> that's the true one. I mean, when you're looking through history and trying to figure out why people did the things that they did, you do kind of have to say, well, I think I prefer this story. But it makes sense to me that they would have named it after the evolution of the of the word bread and the evolution of the word mm. of the word sweet for for sure. So when you were preparing mm-hmm. the heart sweet breads here for yourself, what is the process of preparing them? Because there was kind of a stuff you had to do before you actually cooked cooked it is that right that's right yes yeah. so offal is collected from animal once it's as soon as it's been slaughtered and is processed very quickly you know carcasses are hung for several weeks sometimes to mature you can't do that with with offal so there's a lot of blood in there so first of all what you need to do is soak in some salty water and that just extracts any blood that's hanging around in there it sounds gory but it's not you don't really see it the, the water just goes a little bit cloudy uh, so that's step one and then you poach them in a court bouillon, it's called. It could be just as simple as something like salty water, but you can add onions and leeks, lemon juice, parsley stalks, a bit of white wine, something like that. And it's a bit like poaching an egg. You know, it, yeah, you got it in your hand. It's very soft and squidgy. 
you pop it in the water for if it's if it's a lamb sweetbread, it's just maybe two two or three minutes and bring it out and suddenly it's spongy and slightly rubbery. Then you can kind of take off any little bits of connective tissue. I'm not making this sound nice, am I? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. When I'm cooking steak, I'll cut the fat off, you know? And yeah. I, I think that's one of the fun things about cooking is it's like when you talk about it in detail, it can either sound really amazing or it can sound like, why am I cooking this? But I don't know. You had me at at onions, leeks, parsley, and and white wine. I was like, well, it's going to be great now, so... Well, absolutely. And, you know, we need to be reminded sometimes that when we're eating meat, we're eating an animal. You know, we're very far removed from, you know, our own food. So I think it's a good thing to be grossed out sometimes by your food. I agree with you as well. So we're cutting cutting away the tissue and then what do we do? Yeah, you split it away. It's very obvious to see. And then sometimes people press it under a light weight. I don't know why they do that, but it says that. (laughs) You don't have to do it. But then it's ready to cook. They're usually uh, tossed in butter at tossed in flour or breadcrumbs and fried in butter. Very simple, very quick. You know, these, these aren't long cooks. It's all just, I mean, you basically cook them anyway. So it's just, you're just getting a nice crispy coating on them. And then in the recipe that I did on a blog, I did a very sort of traditional recipe of cooking them up with bacon. So you fry your bacon, take the bacon out, and there's lots of nice bacon fat, which you can fry the sweetbreads in, and then throw some, some peas, fresh peas or, or broad beans, fava beans. This sounds Very amazing. Simple. I'm ready. I'm ready to to try the sweetbreads for sure. Now you were using traditional recipes. Tell us about which recipes you were using and where you found them. Well, that recipe I've read about a few times. But you know, there's not many sweetbread recipes because they were just eaten there and then, often by working class people who back, you know, in the 16th, 17th, even 18th, even 19th century weren't writing down recipes. <laughs> and they only ever really appear as garnishes, you know, along with, you know, the roast lamb or the, or the roast veal. So it's quite hard to get to know what exactly people were doing. There's not very many recipes, but this one seems to be a traditional one and it seems to be fairly universal. So it's popular in, in France as well as, I say universal, that's not very universal, I think, England and France. universal to the time period we're looking at yes so everyone in and around william shakespeare would have known about this way of cooking it and it Mm. sounds not unlike you know i i i cook i don't boil them first i guess but chicken fingers are fried that way in Mm -hmm. a skillet Mm. this way so it's it's not really an an unusual way to to prepare meat but i know that we would love to explore the idea of sweetbreads and their both their linguistic and their culinary history. So what are some of your favorite books or resources you can recommend we use to learn more? Well, as I say, there's not much written about them and there are very few recipes because they're just usually fried as a garnish. But I have a couple. One, I think I think I might have mentioned her name last time I was on. Uh, Jane Grigson has a fantastic book called Good Things. And I don't know why more recipe books are written like this, because she has a chapter. She just takes her favorite ingredients and has a whole chapter de- devoted to each one. And she has a, she's got a whole chapter on sweetbreads with a bit of history in there, as well as recipes, not just uh, British ones, but also, you know, some from, you know, mainland Europe. So that's excellent. The other one is the River Cottage Meat Book. Are you aware of River Cottage? I am not aware of River Cottage. Well, a uh, chef and TV presenter, Hugh Fernley Whittingstall, which is a great name, just started up a TV show 
it's probably 25 years ago now, trying to be self-sufficient and have a little small holding. And it's kind of exploded. <laughs> but he's written this fantastic book, The River Cottage Meat Book. And it goes through, well, everything that you need to know about meat and there's and sustainability and making sure you're eating the whole of the animal, that nose to tail eating, which is kind of getting pretty trendy these days. But this was written before it was trendy. But being somebody who really is interested in sustainability, you make sure there's a, there's a big offal section and sweetbreads get a mention. And there's a few recipes in there. It's a great big book, though. <laughs> It's massive. But it sounds it's really fascinating. And yeah. It's really well written. And he writes very well. Jane Grigson writes very well, too. So um, I read their books like novels, really. <laughs> well, it sounds like there's plenty of material there to be able to do that. We'll link to both of these in the show notes for today. Thank you, Neil, for recommending them. These sound like exactly what we need to start with to explore the history of sweetbreads. Now, as you know, we ask everyone mm-hmm. this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's, what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible, so your choice mm-hmm. would be in addition to those. And you may select a new desert island book for your visit with us today. Okay, I was going to say, do I get a new option? Well, do you know what? I, I've picked some by an author called Peter Breers, who's not particularly well-known, but he's written some fantastically detailed books and i thought i'd choose this one because it's very much gonna be up your street and it's called cooking and dining in tudor and early Stuart england oh that's very perfect for us absolutely it's, it's a big one it's a big <laughs> one it's got one uh, a medieval one he's got uh, lots of regional ones and i mean he's been working in history i mean i've met him and he's i think he's in his 70s and he's been doing it since he was in his 20s and his knowledge is amazing. He's collected information. Well, I just don't know how he's found out some of the stuff. Yeah, anything, anything you want to know about food, you know, in Shakespeare's time is going to be in there. You'd be amazed at what we know, that we still know that um, he's been able to piece together. And there's loads of recipes in there as well. So fantastic. Any, any of his books are great. I could have picked any of them. But I thought, obviously, since I'm talking to you, I'll go with the the Tudor and Stuart's one. I love it that you have it there with you. That's fantastic. And and I don't often necessarily want to read the Desert Island books that people select on the show, but that's one that I'm definitely going to have to go and check out. So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? Well, I'm midway through putting out my the fourth season of my podcast, the British Food History Podcast. So that's exciting. Well, as I'm sure you'll agree, it's great to be able to speak to people all around the world about you know what you think is maybe you know niche topics but it's always nice to uh, find really interesting stuff and and to, to meet new people so that's great yes that's exciting i'm just going through the final stages of the copy ed- copy editing process of my second book which should be out in well early in the new year i don't have a precise date yet hopefully before easter is this a completely new book or is it a follow-on to dark sugar it's a completely new one. Um, okay. It's a biography of a 18th century housekeeper, cook, cookery book writer called Elizabeth Raffold, who essentially invented, that's not really the right word, but came up with perhaps what we think of today as traditional British food, puddings and roasts and all that kind of stuff. Um, that's exciting. No, no one's heard of her. I, well, I was going to say, I haven't, I haven't heard of her and I feel like I, I studied this space pretty well and that's exciting. 
Um, I will look forward to seeing that book come out and I will have links to Neil's podcast in the show notes as well. So make sure you go and listen to that, especially if you're into British food history, it's a fantastic place to explore that further. Neil Buttery, thank you so much for being here with us again this week to take us through the history of sweetbreads for Shakespeare's lifetime. This has been a fun conversation. Thank you. If you enjoyed our show today, be sure to let us know about it. Please add a rating and a review on the podcast platform you're listening from today. If you would like to see pictures of sweetbread recipes from Shakespeare's Lifetime, be sure to stop by the show notes for today's episode. Inside the show notes, you can see more visual content that coordinates with the organ meat history you're learning about today, along with more information about our guest, Neil Buttery, and a link to his previous episodes here on That Shakespeare Life, along with all the information you need to follow Neil's work online and to check out his podcast and upcoming book. Find all these things at CassidyCash.com slash EP231. That's CassidyCash.com slash episode 231. If you are a loyal podcast listener who enjoys learning about Shakespeare's history here with us each week, then consider joining our listener community on Patreon. You can support the show and access bonus content that's only available inside our patrons area, including video versions of the podcast, three-minute animated versions of Shakespeare's plays, exclusive documentary films, and more. Plus, there are even more special patron extras like digital downloads and a monthly Shakespeare book club available at the higher tiers of support. Explore all the benefits and sign up today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That Shakespeare life is written and produced by me, Cassidy Cash. Our audio engineer is Gary Mayholm. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.